The Big Muddy Music Hour is supported by The Bluff Top at Rochport, home of Les Bourgeois Vineyards and multiple lodging options in historic Rochport, Missouri. This getaway location features a tasting room, a wine garden, and a full-service bistro. For more information, visit MissouriWine.com. Playing what's relevant in music from the country of the Midwest and beyond, you are listening to the Big Muddy Music Hour, presented by the Bluff Top at Rochport. I'm your host, Colin Lavote, the shameless voice. How you doing, folks? You feeling good? Feeling steady? Feeling steadfast? This has been a momentous day in the Laveau household as we sent our firstborn off to her first day in kindergarten. It's also her sixth birthday, and we sent... Daisy off to her second year of preschool in the Columbia Public School System, which, uh, you know, it's it's uh, one of those times of year where everyone gets to reflect, but also kind of put get get back to grinding, man. That's that's what what this this season's all about. And speaking of grinding, just want to touch base and remind everyone about a recent announcement. We're bringing back Biscuits, Beats, and Brews presented by Ozark Mountain Biscuit and Bar to Roachport this fall. So if you haven't heard about it, it's a free family-friendly music festival that we're going to be putting on in historic Roachport, Missouri, September 30th through October 2nd. Uh, we're going to have such great acts as MK Ultra, Molly Healy String Project, Noah Earl, my band Decadent Nation will be playing, Kyron Penrose, and many, many more. So uh, make sure you find out all the deets online by following. Uh, there's a lot of pages that are hosting the event page, uh, Ozark Mountain Biscuit and Bar, Big Muddy Music Hour, and Amber House Bed and Breakfast. The proprietor of Amber House is joining me once again for another episode of the Big Money Music Hour. We have Dawson Claridge, who hit me up recently, and he had an idea for a show, and I, I, I can't turn this man down. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we, we're having a, a kind of a, a, an episode that goes outside the normal format this week in terms of what we're focusing on, and I hope it's, it's going to be a learning experience for me because we're going to be delving into a world that I don't know as much about and hopefully Dawson and our other guests are going to be educating us but Dawson Claridge thanks for being back on the show man it's good to be here good to be here again and want to tell you a great job on um, all the shows you've been putting out and congratulations hey thanks man I always appreciate your support of course Amber House Bed and Breakfast is also a supporter of the Big Muddy Music Hour a longtime supporter and so thank you for your support Dawson mm-hmm. so the our other guest that's sitting in the studio with me this week is a f- longtime friend of Dawson's named Bernard Jones who apparently has gone by a lot of different DJ monikers over the years but what we're planning on delving into The theme of this week's show is the history, if you will, of what what EDM is that? Is that dance music in general? Yeah, dance music in general in in the in the Columbia, Missouri scene. Now, me being a a a lame white guy, (laughs) (laughs) also, but I also think this this is this harkens back to the fact that maybe. In my day, in my my youth, there there wasn't as many options for me of of legit places to experience some some real dance scene moments 
you, you know, this is an area of music that I, I, I am admittedly ignorant about and not not just in terms of the broader scheme like the the grander scheme of of what's out there and the 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 grand lexicon of electronic dance music but also just in terms of what has happened in Colombia in the past like I, I know little to nothing so Dawson tell me a little bit about why why this theme and what what you know brought you to bring this to the big money music hour sure I think that there's a a good opportunity to talk about the um, electronic music that is happening in Colombia, but that also has happened in the, the past. And I first discovered electronic music in high school with a band out of uh, London called The Orb, and they are like one of the godfathers of the of the house scene. Um, then later, uh, in the college era, there was a place called the Pier Lounge, which is now uh, Billiards, I yeah, think. Billiards on Broadway. Yeah, which then I think it became shattered after that. But mm-hmm. they had a just a really cool scene, um, great, all kinds of different electronic music, fish tanks, high back booths, low lighting, all the stuff you really <laughs> want to have when you're going to get your groove on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that, to me, was kind of the best place that, that I used to frequent in Columbia for... Uh, getting introduced to that scene, and that was uh, owned and operated by a mutual friend of ours, Jason Cook and Luke Helms. Um, and that's really when I started recognizing that it was a, a language that everybody could understand, whether your race or your gender or anything like that. And then later in life, when I took a trip around the world, I noticed that you could be down in Argentina at a hostel or over in Spain at Ibiza or in Germany at a coffee shop and a lot of the same lounge type music would be being played by the same different artists like Gotan Project or St. Germain or something like that. So it really solidified to me that it is the international language that people can really relate to. Not to be too stereotypical, but that's what you see in like any club scene in any movie that you watch. Yes, you know, absolutely. You, you, yeah. you, you, whenever you're crossing borders, you're not seeing, I mean, maybe if you're in Sweden, you're seeing some death metal band scene or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. But in, in most instances, you're you're getting the big beats and, oh, definitely. and the flashing lights. And the uh, house music to me is, is the base of almost all of that. And I first encountered uh, Bernard playing uh, just all over town at Tonic. And, um, yeah, I played pure Tonic. Pure uh, tonic. The, probably the furthest back is by George. By yeah. George, yeah. Way and uh, yeah. the that old place on top of Quentin's, the rooftop up there, yeah. the rooftop at the new uh, Broadway Hotel. Yeah, See, Farmer. Tonic was the only place that I ever really could say that I, I went to and spent some time in. But even then... It was still more I, of a crossover format there, too. It wasn't strictly electronic music either. Exactly, yeah. 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 Most yeah. of the time I was in there, I was hearing Top 40 stuff. And then I wasn't... I, I'm much more... Uh, comfortable in my own skin <laughs> these days <laughs> to where you know i'll cut a rug for five hours on the dance floor and party all night than i was in my 20s interestingly oh, enough good. because I, <laughs> for true. so many years i was breaking through the uh the cocoon that was just living in in rural missouri and, right. <laughs> and and yeah. uh you know hard rock music you know for for most mo- most of my life it was just i, I like 
sure. Well, both I kinds like of music, hard rock well, and classic know. rock. But, yeah. um, you know, there's, we're, what we're doing is we're, we have an actual house mix that Bernard uh, has done It's that's going to play throughout the show. I'm going to bring it in and out throughout the show. But there's this particular moment in this this mix, this, which is called the Super Sexy Deep House Mix that, that Dawson wanted to talk about. You want to give me a little taste of what you're thinking here? Well, I think it uh, showcases, um, first of all, when you put that mix on, you kind of, it, it, it does half the work for you, you know, puts you in the, in the zone. But then there's one mark uh, where I feel like it uh, really showcases Bernard's transition capabilities and also uh, being able to recognize music that can, you know, reach everybody, but also uh, can go up at the same time. It's got the downbeats and it just starts getting bouncy. And it's also not a departure from what was playing previous or what's going to come up right after it. And I think it's just a perfect blend of transition, which is a unique style to each DJ and uh, Bernard is uh, one of the best around. Wow, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, man. All right, so we're going to just delve in, let these beats play for a minute. This is Bernard Jones on the Big Muddy Music Hour. Enjoy.
playing what's relevant music from the country of the Midwest and beyond. You're listening to the Big Muddy Music Hour. We were listening to some beats from Bernard Jones and his super sexy deep house mix, which we'll be playing excerpts from throughout the course of the episode. But I've been talking a lot with Dawson, his buddy over here, but I want to actually turn it over to the artist himself, the DJ that is behind all the beats you'll be hearing tonight. So I'm curious... A lot of the times, whenever I have a musical artist on, it all starts off with me asking, what started you off on your musical journey? I mean, what was it that made you want to not only just get involved with music, but in particular, this style of music, which, you know, I've, I've never had a DJ on the show before, so I'm, I'm interested in hearing, hearing what, what led to it, and in particular... What was what were those beginnings like? You know what what were the what were the the first experimentations like that early on? Well, first off, thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. It all kind of just started um, pretty much with the piano. I was like five. Um, my grandparents uh, had always had a piano in the house. Um, my parents always had records in the house, and so I would listen to contemporary stuff, and then I'd hear classical stuff or jazz stuff, and I you know kind of tinkered with the piano a little bit until I got older started uh, taking lessons um, but then traditionally when you're a percussionist you have to learn like melody of some sort so um, you know I wanted to do snare drum marimba things like that so I just kept practicing and kind of tinkered from piano and moved towards percussion and then beats and drumming and you know arrangement things like that really became kind of the forefront of my musical development before the turntable so to speak um, but I mean, overall, I mean, I just kind of, you know, my parents were good about getting me lessons when I needed them, you know, new drumsticks after I broke them, you know, <laughs> all the stuff that a kid needs, you know, to just kind of develop those habits. That's great because, you know, I feel like it's kind of a, an assumption probably on a lot of folks' parts that DJs are individuals that maybe, you know, never bothered with an instrument. Yeah, and just, that is quite the, the nomenclature kind of thing about it, you know, but most of the good ones, the successful ones, you know, there is a talent in it, there is an art, there is a science in turntablism and mixing and things like that, but a lot of us that uh, appreciate it more tend to take it further are the ones that have a little bit of a musical background of some sort. Not just pushing buttons and exactly. standing up there and bouncing around and that all does that happen. Sort of yes, that does happen these days. <laughs> <Yes>. but, <laughs> but a long time ago before uh, computers could do it all for you, you know, it was very much a, a, an art in its own medium, you know. So, um, you know, about, I don't know, 12 years old or so, um, a relative of mine had been studying abroad and they got a, a gig in like, uh, I think it was Italy and they were just p- basically playing like disco and stuff over there as their, you know, night job while studying abroad and, um, brought their turntables and some disco records back with them. And I was like, well, I don't use these things anymore. Uh, you know, I'm working a, a big boy job. You know, what do you think? Do you want them? And I'm like, sure. I, don't, I can't afford them. He's like, well, just play with them for a while. See what you think. You know, and so I got them for about two or three years, and, you know, I was like 12, and really started kind of getting into my parents' record collection. I started buying my own stuff at Streetside. I was that kid that was always in there every Tuesday, <laughs> you know, like buying two copies of something so somebody else couldn't get it, you know, because they'd only order a couple of a certain record because it wasn't exactly as mainstream as, you know, it is kind of today. But in the past, you know, it's like there's a couple of records, and if you really wanted to be that person that had it, or that was, you know, the only one that was distinct with that sound in this particular region. You had to buy up all the copies. There wasn't just endless downloads and instant access. And Dreamcatcher had a oh yeah, Dreamcatcher had a great record selection too, back in the day too. Yeah. And so from there, you know, I just kind of 
put the 100,000 hours in, you know, practice, practice, screw up, practice, practice, screw up, try something risky, see if it works. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But that that work in it is what kind of creates your own craft, your own kind of signature thing that makes you set apart from some other artists or producers, DJs, whatever. So explain to me, because I'm still so, it's so interesting because I've played in bands since I was 15 years old. Sure. And I've written songs since before and then, and I, I very clearly know the path or the many paths to creating an arrangement with live instrumentation. Sure. So, but it, to me, there there is especially when it comes back to the the old turntable style where you're actually using vinyl, mm-hmm. and you're you're sampling something from a vinyl that came out in 1970 whatever you get it. and yeah. putting it to a beat mm-hmm. but what what are the actual mechanics of that like where does sure. where does the the beat start like how how do you tie what's the rug that ties the room together i mean yeah. do do <laughs> it, on reddit there's a great subreddit called explain like i'm 5 so Got it. so it, it for for me and for the listeners of the big money music hour explain like we're 5 how you actually take two turntables and a microphone and come up with house music. You get it. Okay. So look at it this way. At some point, you know, discotheques or listening spaces, clubs, bars, whatever, they used to just have a cue list and it would just, you know, 45s would flip and you'd go about your day and there'd be a little dead space in between as people danced and didn't dance to a song. Once they really started figuring out that they could use um, signal mixing, from two different turntables and then Technics, a particular company, came out with the ability to adjust the pitch. And so from there, you could tie things together by speed and time. So look at it this way. DJing is like running a marathon, but you want everybody to tie. So in order to make them tie, they have to be on the same starting point and they have to be at the same speed in order to make them go around that track and tie at the same time. So that's a great analogy for how mixing kind of came into fruition. So people took that, and then they realized, well, yeah, I could take this funky break loop of some James Brown record or something and just loop it and then go back and spin the other one back to that point and then switch the signal to the other one. And so you created this looping effect, which was sampling before you had SP-1200s and digital sampling. And so... Master Flash. Yeah, you get it. Yeah. Um, so, like, what they end up doing is creating this this break and this culture in it, and that's where break dancing and stuff came from, et cetera. But the you know DJing being a pillar of hip hop in that way, it was you know adopted early on by hip hop artists and popularized, but quite differently, it was actually more of uh, turntables and clubs that were really the kind of the thing that popped it out. Now, hip hop took it to the streets, so people were able to see it. Newspapers, record labels, everybody got on the ride. You know, '80s were the '80s. Um, but underneath all that, uh, the evolution of DJing, creating those beats, sampling things. It all was very much underground still in a lot of the ways that it's being made. Or there was individuals in rare countries, not rare, but, you know, unique places early on that just kind of did the same thing and became the apostles or the representatives of this new thing. So once you have the sampling down, once you have the mixing down, you were able to incorporate things, especially sometimes your own live percussions or your own strings, your own, you know, whatever, and you could do that over the top of stuff. And then when SP-1200s and samplers and things like that came out to where we could just cut that piece from a record and keep it and then loop it endlessly and not need to use tune turntables to do that. And then I could add stuff, record that, put it on top of it, add something else, record that, put it on top of it. And then after a while, you start creating a very blocky Duplo style of arrangement. But it was funky and 
rough and you know intriguing raw you know it had some something quite different about it and so that stuff kind of created this branch if you will on this tree where it's like the the equipment and the movement and the people and the music all kind of had this one spot and then after that everybody saw the creativity and they're like oh i can do this with it oh i can do that with it i'm oh man nobody ever did this i want to do that and so you get this just myriad of now pretty much it's ubiquitous a lot of producers a lot of you know, engineers, recording artists, even themselves, they're all producers. They're all, you know, bedroom guys working on their stuff because technology's kind of gotten us there. But it's just that simple first evolution that made the turntable an instrument in that way. Then you were able to sample, and then you were able to incorporate and create. That's kind of how it all, in a generality, there's specific people in specific cities and things that kind of created notable moments in our culture, but overall, Generally speaking, that's kind of the way, you know, the technology met, met the cause. That's awesome. So, Dawson, for you, when, when did you first meet Bernard? Oh, God. That's been Man, 15, back when I was managing tellers, I think, yeah. back, in, back in the day. Yeah, maybe longer than that, 20 years probably. Because back then, too, uh, down at Saki, oh, yeah. they had uh, lounge music, live lounge music all the time, Jen Hameen, all kinds of yeah. One of my mentors, DJ there. Zippy, John Miller, Zippy, yeah. rest in peace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He was a very, very big pinnacle in our turntable DJ culture here in Columbia as I was coming up as well. He was like the first person to really teach me some cool, cool stuff. You know, I was learning on an island in the middle of nowhere and didn't have anybody down the street that did what I did in, in any kind of way until John went to college here, you know. Well, and there was uh, Deja Vu was around back then, oh, too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, Yeah, me and Gizmo. Carl Giddens, shout out Carl. Yeah, yeah. And then at uh, Quinton's, of course. Oh, yeah. And then from there, just kind of being downtown, pretty much, and knowing that um, there was a good group of cachet of people that could actually play records and and spin and got people really uh, going. Uh, Jamie Lux was one of those guys. Oh, yeah, he's a great um, record player too. Paul Trace, you, yeah. re- he was resident at Room Thirty Eight for yep. forever. Oh yeah. And then. Uh, Jen, Jen Hameen, Jen Rothschild, and mm-hmm. yourself. Jen Cabo. Hall's still out there quite a bit. Yeah, and just saw her yeah. the other day. Yeah. yeah. She also uh, does solar as well, but she plays music as well still. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think that also speaks to something that isn't really talked about very much on this show, but the industry culture, right? And by industry, oh, I, mean, I mean industry folks that they're working in the restaurants and the bars in downtown Columbia being its own tight-knit community in and of itself. Oh, yeah, there's a culture to it and everything. Yeah. You you look at a room in a different way if you're a service person. You know, like if you're a customer and you're a customer, you expect things to be a certain way, but when you deal with people and personalities, the industry has its own language, its own view on things. It's very, it's cool. Yeah, restaurants (laughs) really help bring along the, like I used to pick out all the music at uh, Teller's and then at Broadway as well. Um, And there's a, you can incorporate some of this lounge and it doesn't have to be oons, 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 yeah. like deep house but the hitting on the eights is still there and it restaurants have definitely promoted this uh scene without having a dance floor right you know what i mean yeah because sometimes i mean you know people generally call it dance music but i mean it's it's more like momentary it's uh how you're feeling at the time you know if you want something down tempo and chill you can play that you know, if you want something aggressive and drum and bass and fast, you can do that. If you want something big and booming, you can do that. You know, the culture itself isn't necessarily just dance, 
floor oriented. It's right. not built that way. It's like how you feel. Like I know the people nowadays they say it's a vibe or something. You know, it's kind of like how you're feeling, how you want to project that. You can have a soundtrack for that. Definitely awesome. Well, we're gonna continue to go down this path and paint the soundtrack as we move along. But first, we're gonna take a short break. And you're listening to the Big Money Music Hour. My guests this week are Dawson Claridge and Bernard Jones. And we're diving into the electronic music culture of mid-Missouri. So stick around as the Big Money Music Hour keeps on rolling. Big Muddy Music Hour is supported by The Bluff Top at Rocheport, home of Le Bourgeois Vineyards and multiple lodging options in historic Rocheport, Missouri. This getaway location features a tasting room, a wine garden, and a full-service bistro. For more information, visit MissouriWine.com. Also supported by Ozark Mountain Biscuit and Bar, located across from Logboat Brewing Company in Columbia, Missouri. Biscuit and Bar is open six days a week and offers full bar service, an espresso bar with to-go breakfast sandwiches, and serves southern-style comfort food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For more information, visit OzarkBiscuits.com. The Big Muddy Music Hour is supported by Cooper's Landing Campground and Marina, located on the banks of the Missouri River. Cooper's Landing is home to daily food trucks, a full-service bar, and a full schedule of live music. Cooper's Landing also has a selection of riverside camping spaces for both RVs and tents. For more information, visit cooperslandingmo.com. Also supported by Amber House Bed and Breakfast, located in historic Rochport, Missouri. This full-service inn offers lodging and dinner services open to the public. With locally sourced ingredients, a rotating wine list, and an in-house masseuse. For more information, visit amberhousebb.com. The Big Muddy Music Hour is supported by The Dive Bar, located on Business Loop in Columbia, Missouri. The Dive Bar offers full bar service as well as a menu for lunch, dinner, and brunch on the weekends. Food and craft cocktail catering for events is also available. For more information, visit divebarcomo.com. Also supported by the Boone County Historical Society. Since their founding in 1924, the Boone County Historical Society has been preserving Boone County's history for its future generations. Collecting, preserving, and exhibiting historic artifacts, records, and artwork of the people of Boone County. For more information, visit boonhistory.org. Playing with relevant music from the country of the Midwest and beyond, you are listening to the Big Muddy Music Hour presented by the Bluff Top at Rochport. My guests this week are Dawson Claridge, owner and proprietor of the Amber House Bed and Breakfast in Rochport, Missouri, and supporter of this very show. 
And Bernard Jones, a DJ that has been around the scene for decades. And in the background, we've been spinning his super sexy deep house mix. And we've been chatting enough. I think it's about time we let the beats flow a little bit. So enjoy, dear listener.
playing what's relevant music from the country of the Midwest and beyond. You're listening to the Big Muddy Music Hour presented by the Bluff Top at Roachport. Hanging out with my friends Dawson Clarge and Bernard Jones. We're talking about the history of the electronic music scene in mid-Missouri. And but, but before we get to that, there was kind of a side conversation that happened before we started rolling in terms of uh, some of the different DJ monikers that you've gone by in the past. Because, I mean, I'm looking at all your stuff on SoundCloud and everything, and it's all under Bernard Jones. But I'm a little bit curious about what some of these may have been or any any that you might be interested and or willing to share on the air, because I know that there might be some some uh, some illicit apparently yeah. names that you yeah. might not want to. I, yeah, I'll, I'll just go with the, the typical kind of stuff that people kind of know, or at least that if you're following house music. Um, notably, the East St. Louis Players, which was a jazzy house duo between me and a guy named Don Tinsley out of St. Louis. Uh, very excellent producer and DJ musician, instrumentalist. Um, just an amazing, you know, individual. Other than that, and we put out in. Early 2000s, or well, early 2010s, probably uh, about three EPs and a couple of notable mixes, stuff like that. We had a music video in Europe um, that was playing on, uh, I don't know, BBC and stuff like that. Uh, you can kind of find stuff like that. I posted on YouTube and things like that. So just to have a little cred on it. And then the last alias I had was Burn Hard, which was a little bit more of a aggressive electronic kind of sound. Hence the name. It's not Bernard, but Bernhard. And, um, you know, that record did really well. Um, I think we did number 16 in the dance charts uh, the same week that Skrillex put out Recess, which was a very big electronic music album. So not number five, not top ten kind of stuff, but a guy from here. Yeah, just that's, doing, that's a big doing deal. What I, doing what I do. You yeah, know, at least, at least shooting that far, which was really cool. Um, got some really good promotion and placements. A lot of people flew me places to play records. You know, did a lot of traveling. A lot of production and stuff in cities just because I was in the room with somebody that I admired and had to you know chance to make music with them it's an amazing moment you know but yeah other than that there's a couple other names that I probably won't drop on the air <laughs> just just for legality's sake I think too because if they find out who wrote that record and it was sampling like Michael Jackson or something I might get sued <laughs> so the, the seedy underbelly of the electronic music oh, yeah. world we people... call it bootlegs yeah because yeah. you don't license it you just basically take the sample and make something really fun out of it and you play it at a club live you don't really sell it some people do sell bootlegs but it's a bad move but the, the thing was to have a song that people really loved and remembered or something and then just freshen it up a little bit now people get paid a lot of money to do that and it's part of a marketing program for a label you know, we need to get the, the edgy remixes for this new pop song, blah, blah, blah. Before, that wasn't really a marketing tactic or a method of strategic, you know, planning for any record label at all. And it was something they were fighting. Oh, absolutely. And now, now they, they embrace, embrace it. it. Yeah. yeah, it's weird yeah. how that works, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Once they figure out how to tap into it. And yeah, monetize it. Make, yeah, you know, sure. I always said that making your art meet commerce is kind of the one thing that sustains you. You know, you have to be able to be on your IP. You have to own your rights if you can. You know, try to keep as many of them, you know, stay on your accounting, make sure your, your royalties are getting paid to you, you know, follow your agreements, re-sign them if they expire or whatever you got to do or take ownership of your stuff and then re-put it out. Like, it's important to do that because eventually if you want to keep doing this, you have to have some sort of capital to, to buy the equipment. You need uh, the money to be stable and take care of your family or things like that. So making art meet commerce, you know, especially in this industry is something that has definitely separated some of the good ones from the bad ones. 
Jocelyn, I want to turn back to you for a second because <clears throat> you mentioned the fact that as we were talking about the service industry earlier, and that's that's your background, that's your forte, and I've talked about the uh, what makes the Amber House Bed and Breakfast special in so many ways, but one of the things that I always think about when I think about my favorite time spent at the Amber House Bed and Breakfast is the music that you're playing in the background. Sure. And, yeah. I mean, you're kind of a DJ in your own right, as, oh, yes. essentially. I also and, get paid to listen to music and right. create ambiance for my guests and also for myself while I'm uh, back in the, the kitchen or out on the floor or something. And, you know, just during the day we have music playing, but we go all the way from classical to a lot of jazz, blues. I do slip in some... Uh, down tempo lounge, some Mark Farina, Farina. mushroom jazz, or yeah, there you go. something. If I know I have the right group in there, and it's not crazy or anything, but it's just it has it has a nice smooth, relaxing uh, vibe to it. Nice, um, you know, kind of party, especially if let's say a group has the whole house and um, they have a dinner service, and then they want to stick around and play cards or do whatever they want to do. I'll put on something a little more upbeat definitely on the in the lounge uh department home records is uh great plethora label. of labels for that but um yeah music of all sorts and then part of the djing too you know there's uh, this guy parov's stellar who throws down incredible beats but he also mixes in like 20s 30s jazz behind it too so it's like eclectic it, but it, it's cohesive yeah all <clears throat> excuse me all um DJing, you can infuse whatever, you know, because they're all on, on the, the fours or the eights, and you just line them up and throw them together. So you can mix in any any kind of music with uh, uh, DJing, especially if you want to play to a different room. You know, if you're poolside, you might want to throw something a little more like, a little more, even like a little dubby or dubstep, reggae type stuff. And then if you're um, playing to a... a, a uh, hotel bar, you know, where you're at the airport, you can also mix stuff in for that too. Baseball games, football games, I mean, it's all relative. Mixing has the ability to kind of be ubiquitous for a scene or the situation. Like, it's not all, you know, these festival big beats driven by lasers and flashing lights. You know, it's sometimes it can be sultry and subtle, and sometimes it can be like swingy and jazzy. There are other times that it, it's melancholy and very muted and stuff, and it's just there in the background. Yeah, a lot Nicholas of the stuff. Jar is yeah, one of my favorites. Right? A lot of the stuff, you know, it's like yes, it's dance music, but it, it's like I said before, it's kind of more of a feeling and how you uh, want to set that that vibe or that that feeling for a particular moment or an engagement, whatever. You know, mixing is not just standing on a stage and using turntables. So Bernard, tell me a little bit about the history of electronic music in Mid Missouri. Sure. Well, I guess, you know, for the most part, there's time in the mid-late 90s um, that, you know, clubs were kind of, they had always had turntables and they'd always had people that would just play records per se, but not a lot of the establishments were really adopting the mixing format. There was a playlist and you just pull records off the wall and you drop them on a turntable, hit cue, and when it ended, next song, you know. But 90s, they really started getting the turntable thing into the Midwest. And just kind of, I was still too young to go to the bars and, and see a lot of the acts, but I knew of the other shows. And a lot of things about the music industry that were, you know, electronic based at the time were very underground. 
So there was shows in warehouses and old meat factories, and, <laughs> you know, like garages <laughs> and things. And, you know, that there wasn't exactly like an age limit for something like that. They weren't serving anything. You know, it was just like go to this dark, dirty warehouse. It's got a red light in it and a couple turntables and some DJs from Chicago and Atlanta, you know, whatever, wherever they were from. And so having that undercurrent kind of situation, like, you know, we were kind of discussing earlier, um, you know, once they made the ability to, to make money off of it. And they figured out that, oh, man, I could just keep those people on the floor. I could keep them drinking. I could keep them buying stuff. Faster pace, higher energy, higher turnover. So that's kind of when that started becoming the, the status quo for our community around that time. Now, in the 2000s, there was a few of us you know, that were DJs. There were some that were regional that we would connect with. Uh, a lot of us, like um, early 2002, maybe 2001, we started something called Midwest Massive which uh, before Facebook, before MySpace, all the social media connections, there used to be a thing called like message boards. And so on message boards, it was a great place for people to connect, talk, you know, talk about the parties that happened and the records they love, you know, you know, equipment. I remember the, the Blue Note message board back in the day in particular was usually a... Um, a, a ground grounds for a lot of outrage. Yeah, yeah. There is that side of things too. Yes, yes. Don't read the comments. Yeah, right. Exactly. But I mean, like we had that ability, and so with Midwest Massive, we start kind of solidifying a, a union, I guess, for DJs to where it's like, all right, well, everybody's going to get paid decent. We're not. They're not going to let ownership of any venue use us against each other and say, well. DJB is going to do this job for $50 and five drink tickets when the other guy was getting enough money to pay his rent. So we established a thing amongst ourselves, you know, first and foremost, as the community grew, that we wouldn't undercut each other. You know, we'd teach each other stuff, but if you had your, your own little sauce, that was yours, you know, but, you know, if I wanted to learn something, you know, your door's open, my door's open to you, you know. So I used to go over to, like, John Miller, DJ Zip. I used to go to his place after he'd get off work, and I'd go over there and just mess up and mess up in front of him, like... And he's over there just like doing some homework or playing a video game or something and just putting up with this awful, you know, dry shoes and dryer, you know, like that stuff. He put up with it for hours and hours, days after days, you know, and then I got real good. And then one day he just stood up and he was like, that's it. You did it. He's like, that was a perfect mix. And I was like, finally. But I mean, yeah, there was a community of us. And in Columbia, you know, people like Kevin McGee, Kevo, you know, Gucci, there's a bunch of really great community artists themselves now they don't really get out there and let's say produce records or tour a whole lot but these guys are definitely people that have solidified what we all fought and support for you know they were playing the playing the area too and also being uh you know having jobs as well not just being full-time djs which is Rare. Back then, wasn't that yeah. easy to do, you know? So Yeah, I think me and Carl and Zippy were the only ones that had, like, full three or four days a week of playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks for regaling everyone on some of the the deep dive history. And speaking of deep, let's get back to the super sexy deep house mix by Bernard Jones. Playing in the background right here, right now, on the Big Money Music Hour, presented by The Bluff Top at Rochaport. Love. 
Playing what's relevant in music from the country of the Midwest and beyond, you're listening to the Big Money Music Hour. My guests this week are Dawson Claridge and Bernard Jones, and we've been diving into the history of electronic music. So we've been talking a lot about the history, but let's talk a little bit about the present, shall sure. we? Because a lot of what we've been talking about is the artistry of house music and and what it takes to really construct and arrange a song in a way that requires a lot of work putting in those 10,000 hours to be a true artist sure and but we've also been yeah we've also been talking about a a little bit about space bar artists as well as (laughs) as as we've been calling them because there's the the technology has gotten so good that literally processes that used to take human skill and touch are now being automated and quantified and algorithm, you know, it's, uh, 
the computer is taking the, the, the art form out of the human, per se, and putting it in its own hands by the push of a space bar. It's basically what we mean by that. Exactly. So tell me what that's like for you, having put in all that effort to to watch this. Because, I mean, we're talking about artists, uh, if we want to call them that, that are making millions of dollars sure. playing lost shows in Las Vegas and yeah, throwing they, they, cake on people in the crowd, and all they're doing is hitting a space bar. I mean, yeah, that is a that is a known thing now. It's kind of funny. A lot of us back in the day, we used to, you know, kind of make fun of, you know, the pantomime, as you would say, of of the art. And there's a two edged sword to it. So it's great that we have this ability that our community has gotten so far up that we are now headliners in places like Vegas and big festivals and concerts. An entire festival has been devoted to electronic music in general. That's great for our community and our cause. However, with that, there comes this other thing where there's the pretend, there's the pose, there's the um, you know charlatan kind of thing that happens. And so sometimes people, you know, if you have money, uh, money can get you a good PR person. It can buy you a remix to a song that you paid somebody to make. And then legally, you can sign contracts with these people that say, be quiet. Uh, you get paid this. You are never allowed to say this, and I own it in full and entirety for the perpetual use in all of the universe, blah, blah, blah. And then from there, it's your record. And then you say, hey, Dad, I need some money. Go pay this guy to make me a cool remix because he's really popular right now. So Dad writes a $50,000 check. Kid that's never made a record in his life is now all of a sudden charting on, you know, some big download Apple, whatever, you know, like, and then there's this cred that comes with that. And then it's not earned. So there's something that happens. Either A, they get found out and they're just not a good show because they didn't put in the work to learn the craft, and then they phase out and then it's just bad money spent and they were, they're a one-hit, quote-unquote, wonder. But there's also those that end up getting up there and really establishing themselves as a brand or a performer and not um, an artist creating a performance. It's, uh, it's different. It's kind of like ghostwriters. Yeah, 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 yeah ghostwriters, exactly. I mean, that, that is something that used to happen in contemporary music for the most part, and now it's even in electronic music. And it's a, it's a racket. Some of the, the, these guys that you think that make really great records, they have an army of people that want to be on their label because they're a big label. So this guy's like, yeah, cool. Well, um, I want these five tracks. I'm going to use them for something. Um, I own them. I'm putting my credit on them. You might get a writer's credit if I like you. But then after I use these, then your next five records will be your records on my label. So they're using that leverage to directly further their careers by the, the efforts of people who want to come up in the game or, you know, do those things. And so that does exist now. However, the industry itself, it's, it's also democratizing in a way, too, because there are people that know how to play. And you don't want to stand next to somebody like myself who really knows how to play and you don't. It's going to look really bad for you. <laughs> DJs are still cocky individuals when it comes down to it because we're good at what we do and we're proud of it. And like prize fighters. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And I'm a regular McGregor around here, you know, yeah. so it's like I'll beat you on your own equipment. <laughs> you know, and that's, the, that's true. You know, like I've, I've mastered what I do, but I also study and learn new equipment as it comes. So even the kids' new stuff, their controllers, the little, you know, super cool iPads with a couple discs on them, I know how to use that too. Not only that, better than you. And so that's where the skill and the hard work comes in. So there are DJs out there that put on amazing performances and use technology in such innovative ways. It's an amazing thing to see. Now, they're, like I said, the inverse is always going to be there. They don't last as long. though. You know, usually they get tired of spending money or they get found out or it's just not fun for them because they're not really in it for the love. They're in it for like the moment or the coolness or the clout. 
that happens. But our scene now, today, especially in Colombia, it's a diverse group. There's a lot of young people that know how to play. There's a few that don't. They still get gigs. You know, it's weird. But that's not my business, per se. But overall, It's you almost know, like we need a new club to... Nice slide in what? there. I like that. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's definitely a you know room for for some good quality music uh, performed by real people, you know, in front of you. I think that 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 kind of thing, there's space for that here in town, and I, you know, we'll talk about it some more here soon when I, I, I listen a little bit more to the streets and I find out what's going to happen. I think people realize that it is an art form. And it's the space bar thing is just kind of, it's not that impressive, especially a lot of people can just honestly do that on their own yeah. if they want to. But at the same time, I think there's a, as everything always ebb and flows and recreates and recycles, I think the, the actual, uh, you know, sharpening the tools and learning the craft and sure. there, people want that. I believe, again, especially some of the older people, like there has some been. people I know that <laughs> <laughs> have uh, seen it for you know years and years and years. Yeah, and twenty or better. Some of the yeah. best people all over the world. But there is something on it too that I would like to tap on one second before we move to the next segment. But it's uh, equipment and technology has also made it very democratizing. So a lot of people that I used to have to chase down records. I have to buy. I used to, have to buy stuff online from Europe in order to get it. Nowadays, the music can be downloaded. The equipment is pretty much two days away from Amazon, you know, um, if you've got the, the time. Uh, the tools are very much accessible today more than ever. Well, that's awesome. Well, I really appreciate the education. I've learned a lot today, and hopefully the good listeners of the Big Money Music Hour have learned a lot as well. But I want to thank my guest this week, Dawson Claridge of Amber House Bed and Breakfast. Always good to see you, man. You too, man. I yeah. like sitting it's been, here been too, chatting. Yeah, been too long. And Bernard, thank you so much. Yes, sir. And uh, we're going to let Bernard's house music play us out tonight as well. Once again, we've been listening to the super sexy deep house mix. And we're going to let that play us out this week. So keep on fighting the good fight. And on behalf of everyone at KBIA and LB Creative, this is Colin Laveau, the Shameless Voice, signing off. Oh,